Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And even though we're a few weeks into the year, 2014 is still pretty brand new, all things considered. So this week we're celebrating all those clean slates and turned over leaves with a show we're calling Fresh Starts. One thing about fresh starts is they're not always so cut and dried, so pinpointable. Sometimes a fresh start is a work in progress. And that's definitely the case for 45-year-old D.C. resident Philippa Hughes. It is hard to say where to begin. In fact, I think when people want to have a fresh start, they think a lightning bolt is going to come down and hit them and everything's going to be great or changed or somehow different. And in fact, the change happened over a period of time. But the day I was diagnosed with cancer, I can point to as a day that everything did change. So I've labeled that day the worst day of my life. (laughs) But all these things were already in motion. That just sort of accelerated everything. And then seeing that city paper article was just like sort of the nail in the coffin as to old Philippeb. Philippa's right. It is hard to say where to begin. But for this story, let's begin with Old Philippa. Old Philippa arrived in Washington, D.C. in 2001 as a lawyer. I was lobbying for a group of investment advisors. As far as law jobs go, it was actually probably a really good one for me to have because I am kind of a social person and that's basically all that was. But I just felt so constrained and I just knew that creative life was for me. Like I knew that I had to be in a creative life somehow. So she started to write. She began a blog called The Adventures of Who Girl, which is me. And as a longtime lover of the arts, she devoted some of her posts to reviewing arts events around town. It was those blog posts about art picks each week that started getting the most traffic. And then that's what led to me thinking I should do a calendar of all the arts events in D.C., not just what I'm doing. And that's what led to starting Pink Line Project, a website that listed every single art event that happens in D.C. Now, if you know the name Philippa Hughes, chances are good it's through Pink Line Project. Because after Philippa launched the calendar in 2007, she also started hosting events, basically for fun at first. Like I was doing these little salons in my home. Like I was thinking, I don't know, it was like a modern day Gertrude Stein or something. Then the salons began to grow. That led to finding a, a raw space on 14th Street and turning it into an art party, basically. And we had video art, performance art, this cool band. And like hundreds of people came. The next time I did it, I charged $10. And then I realized, whoa, like, I might might be able to make some money doing this. I'm going to quit my job. (laughs) So I did. (laughs) Next thing she knew, she was hosting events all over the place. You know, I had the Supernova Performance Art Festival. Um, I do an event called Cherry Blast every year, which is part of the Cherry Blossom Festival. And her writing was kind of falling to the wayside. Then in fall 2012, Philippa hired a business coach. To think about how I was going to evolve Pink Line Project. And we did a mission statement and a value statement. And I started to realize that that mission and value statement was not just about the business. It was about myself. And I started to see myself differently as somebody who not only wanted to be a producer and supporter of artists but to actually create art on my own. And I started thinking back to how Pink Line Project began in the first place, where I just wanted to write. And that blog turned into this bigger thing that kind of got out of my control, and I ended up having to run a little business instead of writing. So Philippa vowed she would go back to writing every day. 
Toward the end of 2012, she remembers reading this article. About living as if your hair is on fire. And something about that really struck home with me, with this idea that you should always be running or hustling, living as if you're about to die, basically, (laughs) which sounds depressing, but actually, for me, it became very motivating. She embarked on extensive travels. She took a memoir writing workshop in Maui. She visited her family. She felt like she was really finding herself again. There was just one problem. For like a good two or three months, it was like in my head that something's wrong. Um, I was having this little discharge from my breast, which was unexplained. But what's so weird, because I actually even had, like, my annual exam during that time, and they didn't see anything. I had two mammograms and two sonograms done, and they didn't show anything. Eventually, Philippa went to see a doctor at Georgetown. It was August 29th, 2013, a.k.a. the worst day of Philippa Hughes' life. When I was diagnosed with cancer, I didn't expect her to say what she said, because I was just in my head, I was like, oh. No problem. (laughs) So I was sitting there, and she even said, do you want to call anybody? Or do you need to talk to anybody? I'm a very inward-looking person, despite my very social exterior. I am actually very private, and like I just wanted to keep it within myself. I just wanted to kind of process it alone. So no, I said, no, I don't want to talk to anybody. too like it was like this beautiful sunny perfect day in August it was not humid at all and when I left her office at Georgetown I decided to walk home which is not a short distance and I was like bawling my eyes out the whole way and I remember thinking like all these people are just walking by me and nobody's paying attention like I, I just kept thinking like would I have done something if I had seen a girl walking down the street crying like I probably wouldn't have And yet, I just got, like, basically the worst news of my life. Philippa did eventually tell her friends, starting, in fact, with a gal pal who happened to text her during that walk. She immediately left her work, and we met at Bar DuPont and sat at this couch outside on DuPont Circle, crying our eyes out. (laughs) But it was so perfect. I mean, I was devastated, but... It was just like this awesome reminder that it was the beginning, actually, of people showing me so much love. And that love took so many forms. Philippa was diagnosed early, but she needed a double mastectomy and would undergo six months of breast reconstruction. In October, several weeks before the surgery, her friend Holly Bass gave Philippa an art baptism as part of DC's Emerge Art Fair. I mean, it was like this beautiful, sunny October day. And I'm telling you, like, it was not performance. Like, I just literally started to feel the spirit moving inside of me. And I am not a religious person at all. And before we even got into the water, I was bawling my eyes out. We were in the water, I was bawling. After, like, I was just bawling my eyes out the whole time because I just started to realize, like, this is really happening. Like, I'm really becoming a writer right now. And these feelings of transformation continued a week later when Philippa celebrated her birthday. So my birthday, October 13th, I wanted to have just my few close friends together. This is before I had sort of made it public that this was happening to me. I was really still trying to keep it close. 
And so I wanted to do something fun, but acknowledge that a horrible thing was happening. So another friend happened to see a little poster or something that said that October 13th was Set Your Tatas Free Day. And it was in recognition of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which happens to be October. And so I decided that we would burn our bras in a bonfire for my birthday. And there's something really cleansing about fire. You know, I think you see it in a lot of cultures. You burn things to set them free, and then you renew yourself. So I literally burned every single one of my bras. <laughs> but I was really trying to encourage my friends to throw things into the bonfire too, and to really think about the fact that you don't have to get cancer to renew yourself or to make a change. I, and in fact, don't wait until you get cancer to do these things. Like You might not get as lucky as me and have a second chance. After the surgery, the recovery was tough, but Philippa took heart in the fact that she was writing again. And then, on a December trip to London, she was luxuriating in this gorgeous hotel suite, the gift of yet another loving friend, when she came upon an article in the Washington City paper. The headline, The Pink Line Takes a Detour. Uh, To quote for just a moment, This year, Pink Line wound it down, perhaps for good. In August, Hughes was diagnosed with stage zero breast cancer, a discovery that would cause her to question her line of work. When I read this article, I was like, what the heck is this? Like, they're basically telling everybody I'm dead, you know? I was still feeling very raw about having just had, you know, a major surgery seven weeks before that. Like, I just wasn't ready to read that I was done with, basically. Especially when Philippa Hughes knows she isn't done with. She's writing. Writing up a storm, actually. And as for Pink Line Project, she's determined to re-establish it as a simple calendar. She's done planning events. She still wants to support other people's creativity, but now it's finally time, finally, to focus on her own. It is funny to be talking about, like, a fresh start when I realize I'm still in the middle of it. In fact, you know, I do have to have another surgery. So, you know, to my point earlier, it's like your fresh starts take a while. (laughs) They don't just start one day. And for now, Philippa Hughes is taking it day by day with her hair on fire all the while. The next person we'll meet today also got a fresh start in quite the dramatic way. Just before the holidays, coastal reporter Brian Russo brought us a story about a man named Ronnie. At the time, he was living in a tent in the woods near Ocean City, Maryland. Well, that story prompted dozens of people to send emails in hopes of helping the Navy veteran. And as Brian tells us, one of those messages led to a major change in Ronnie's life. When I first crawled into Ronnie's tent in the woods... It was like being swallowed up in that same sort of pitch blackness you only encounter when all your power goes out in the middle of the night. I'm Brian. Hi, Brian. My name's Ronnie. It was so dark I couldn't see his face, and the blankets that lined Ronnie's tent weren't soaking wet, but they were far from dry. The chilly air was only warmed by Ronnie's lit cigarette 
and the abundant amounts of secondhand smoke. We talked about his life as an internet business owner, writing code and building websites in the days before Flash. We talked about his time in the military and the series of unfortunate life events that forced him to live in that tent for the last three years. But mostly we talked about how hard it is to survive the winter and the difficulties he's had trying to get back on his feet. Well, it's real easy for people to say, all you got to do is go get a job. But try to go from with one set of clothes that you've been wearing for a month, you haven't had a shower for a month, get out of that tent and go get a job somewhere. After the story aired, we received a bunch of emails from folks who were not only touched by the story, but also wanted to help. One email in particular caught my eye, and it was from this guy. I'm Jerry Black, the founder and director of the Veteran Support Centers of America. We also call it VSCOA. Viscoa is one of the only shelters for homeless and disabled veterans on the eastern shore. It's located in the little rural town of Quantico. When temperatures dipped into the single digits for a string of days and freezing rain pummeled the region, Black reached out and sent a representative to pick Ronnie up at a secondary location and take him in at their 50-acre facility known as Camp Royal Oak. He says if you're a homeless or disabled veteran living on the eastern shore, you don't have many options. The rural veteran community is probably the most underserved veteran community that's out there. You go across the bridge and get over into western Maryland, into the major metropolitan areas, and the services are there. There's Mm -hmm. no doubt about it. But you cross the bridge and you drive out here, and even um, your most well-connected veteran, upper-middle-class individual will tell you that as far as the services go, they're slim and none and, you know, slim left town. Camp Royal Oak can house as many as 20 disabled and homeless veterans. And because the program is under the umbrella of the VA, Black and his team can help vets find housing, jobs, and even treatment for things like PTSD. But he says the biggest challenge at the beginning was trying to quantify the problem. Bringing the VA and waking the VA up to the fact that there is a major issue out here was a big part of what we had to do. When we first approached the VA back in 2008, they told me we had six homeless veterans on the eastern shore of Maryland I can tell you right now we have over 250 any given night out here. Black told me that sometimes it can take a while for guys at Camp Royal Oak to adjust back to a normal lifestyle after long periods of homelessness. But he says that hasn't been the case for Ronnie. He's transforming before our very eyes, and I think you're going to find he's a different individual that you saw out there in the tent. He's gone from uh, being in that survival mode to an individual now that is laying out plans and goals and realizes that he can put his life back together. I found Ronnie dressed in a crisp polo shirt and jeans in the main house. He was clean-shaven and doing something he hadn't done in years, cooking. He lit up when he saw me and told me that he had something he was even more excited to show me. And there it is. His first bed in more than three years. Mine's right here, the bottom bunk. It holds four people in this room. Uh, Right now, I do have a roommate. The other rooms are all, they've got their own room. Dresser, closet, keep it clean every single day, make the bed every morning. That first night when you came in here, what was it like? What was going through your head? It was amazing. The first thing that they had me do was wash my clothes. They already had the bed made for me, fed me right away, and then I got to sleep in a, in a warm house, in a warm bed, and woke up the next morning, got to eat breakfast. Didn't have to do chores the first couple of days, but now I'm going over and beyond what I really need to do because... Yeah. I appreciate what these people have done for me. And Ronnie isn't just passing the time doing chores at Camp Royal Oak. The folks at Viscoa are helping to get him caught up with all the things in the computer world he's missed during his years in the woods. So he can start building websites, writing code, and most importantly, making some money again. He says it's made all the difference. I've come alive again. It's so nice to 
you know, have a purpose in life again and not just be wandering aimlessly, you know, don't know what you're going to do from one day to the next. And where I was in the woods in West Ocean City, I had to walk to get something to eat four miles yeah. into in Ocean City where the churches are that, that mm -hmm. feed folks like us. Mm -hmm. You know, I was minimum 10 to 15 miles a day. I remember Ronnie telling me in his tent that he was done with being homeless and that he was going to pray that someone would hear his voice on the radio and help him. Now, standing in his room, he no longer looked despondent and desperate. He looked driven and determined. He told me some homeless people go to shelters for the winter just to survive, but many of them plan to go right back into the woods when the weather gets warmer. He says this time, he's not going back. I felt that as soon as I walked in the door, and definitely in the first couple of days, and, and even right now, I mean, this, this is it. This is, this is my shot. Jerry Black says while Ronnie's progress is a wonderful exception to the rule, he knows it's still a rough road ahead, because jobs are hard to find here on the shore, and there are a growing number of people, both civilians and veterans, who find themselves living on or below the poverty line. We have a responsibility. Don't for a minute think the VA can handle all of this. They can't. They're a partner in this. We, our community, you and me, our neighbors, we have a responsibility to step up. And it's not easy. If you're dealing with someone with post-traumatic stress and you think they just went crazy, no, man, uh, you know, they had, they, they're dealing with issues that you and I, thankfully, never have to. They took that bullet, so to speak. The view from Ronnie's bunk is a vast forest. He says every night he looks out into the darkness of those woods and realizes that just a few weeks ago he was out there, and now he's in here. It, I feel like I'm home. And for Ronnie, that's all he's been asking God for every single night for three-plus years, right before he laid his head down to sleep in his tent. I'm Brian Russo. Time for a break, but when we return, we'll continue our look at D.C.'s McMillan Sand Filtration Site and ask residents how they feel about plans for the site's future. The biggest tragedy about this site is the city treating it like it's just a Ward 5 project. It is a Washington, D.C. project. It is a nation's project. And later this hour, a fresh start for a major proponent of smart growth. We had to rediscover the principles of city making. Those stories and more are coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Today, our theme is fresh starts. And if you remember, last week we visited the McMillan Sand Filtration Site just off North Capitol Street Northwest. The site has become, as environment reporter Jonathan Wilson put it, the district's version of Stonehenge. Well, now the place is on the verge of getting its own fresh start. Jonathan brings us this story on what's being proposed and why some residents aren't so thrilled. Annie Corbett says she spent a good part of the past two years dispelling myths and rumors about the McMillan sand filtration property. The level of misinformation about this site 
is staggering. Corbett is the project coordinator for Vision McMillan Partners, the public-private collaboration between the mayor's office and a team of developers, engineers, and architects. She says it makes sense that there are so many different narratives surrounding the McMillan site. It has sat unchanged and unused for more than two decades. And the last time it was open to the public before World War II. In the development process, there's there's 20 plus years of storytelling around who said what and who intended what and who controls what and what used to happen when my grandma lived there. As far as Corbett and her team are concerned, the McMillan sand filtration site was an industrial property, cleverly designed to look as park-like as possible. There was a tree-lined walking path around the rim of the site, but as far as the vast majority of the land, it was covered by a grid of 2,100 manhole covers used to service the sand filtration caverns underneath. Corbett says McMillan was only a recreational site in the context of the early 1900s, when enjoying a park meant little more than a leisurely stroll in suits and long dresses. And so in order to create a park in the context of 2014 and the kinds of things that you and I might like to do today if we were to go to a park, it has to be adapted unless you simply want to stroll the perimeter. For those who oppose the current development plan, the fight is about much more than deciding what a park is or is not. But the history of what took place on the McMillan sand filtration site before it was fenced off during World War II is important. Aerial photos taken before the war show the paths of a baseball diamond worn into the ground among all those manhole covers, suggesting that whether they were supposed to or not, local children made this their playground. And there's more. Because of the heat, blacks and whites went on the site to sleep at night, and it was the first integrated, de facto integrated park in this nation, and that's a history that we're not we're not getting out of this. That's Tony Norman, a member of Friends of McMillan, a group formed to oppose what it sees as thoughtless redevelopment of the site. We always say we want to be a state. Every state preserved its heritage. The district wants to sell its heritage. This site is a part of our heritage in the evolution of Washington, D.C. The Vision McMillan team, of course, takes issue with that characterization. Annie Corbett says after countless town hall meetings and adjustments to the original Vision McMillan proposal, the plan addresses just about every community concern that she's heard. It will preserve all the historic sand silos on the 25-acre site, while also containing an 8-acre park, a grocery store, and retail shopping. Vision McMillan's plan also calls for 10% of the new housing units on the site to be affordable to low-income residents. And Corbett says while the McMillan site currently contributes to the flooding problems that often plague Ward 5, the new development should help by retaining 100% of the water it collects, a huge improvement over current conditions. While it looks grassy, it looks like a meadow right now, um, it's actually 20 acres of cement. It collects water the same way a parking lot collects water, only retaining about 5%. That comparison to a parking lot may be an apt one when it comes to stormwater. But Tony Norman and the Friends of McMillan say that's just it. The McMillan site isn't a parking lot. And he says that's how city leaders are treating it, like another empty plot of land that can bring the city more revenue and growth. The proposals that we've submitted show that the site can be self-sustaining and not a burden to the city if, if they want to go in that direction. Limited development, something great, a historic site. Or else you want to treat it like a parking lot and just 
cut it up into small pieces and put as much development as you can on it. Kirby Vining, the treasurer of Friends of Macmillan, says the specifics of the Vision Macmillan proposal aren't as important as the fact that the current plan emerged in 2007 from a non-competitive bidding process. Vining says competition would push architects, engineers, and developers to come up with better ways to adapt the property and preserve its history. That's one of the deepest concerns to me is what kind of benefit are we talking about precluding by looking at only one plan that's going to eat up most of the site there. The Vision Macmillan plan's next hurdle is a significant one. Though the district's historic preservation office approved the design last fall, the seven-member body also found that the plan would require substantial demolition of the historic landmark. That means ultimately the property's fate is in the hands of a city official known as the mayor's agent will have to make a delicate decision about whether to preserve history, promote growth, or try to achieve some balance between the two. I'm Jonathan Wilson. now about four miles south of the Macmillan site to the Capitol Riverfront in southeast D.C. The front, as developers and business types call it, now has condos, offices, restaurants, not to mention Nationals Park. Lauren Ober visited the front to learn more about the neighborhood's future and what's being done to put a fresh face on a very old part of the city. It's a weekday afternoon, and Yards Park in southeast D.C. is filled with young parents pushing baby strollers and retirees walking little dogs. Then there's Yoshi Tannenbaum. He's a 19-year-old skateboarder from Silver Spring, and he's come to this five-and-a-half-acre park in Capitol Riverfront to shred. You see the transitions? He's talking about the curved wooden benches right on the riverfront, benches that are perfect for launching skateboards. It's just a cool, scenic spot for people to come. It's not at a skate park or it's crowded. It's just cool. It's a cool spot. It's taken a while for Capitol Riverfront to become a cool spot. For years, it was notable mostly for dust and jackhammering and construction traffic. But now, Capitol Riverfront is materializing from the rubble and grit as a place that kind of looks like a real neighborhood. Uh, We've often been described as an emerging neighborhood. We think we've arrived and we're firmly established. That's Michael Stevens. He's the president of the Capitol Riverfront Business Improvement District and the community's chief cheerleader. You won't find a person more enthusiastic about Capitol Riverfront than Stevens. We're this new growth community, and I think people are beginning to realize we're very accessible and proximate. You know, we have water frontage. We also are five blocks south of the U.S. Capitol. We have great transportation accessibility. So I think those are the things that really define us. Uh, Additionally, I think what is now defining us is we're an urban residential community. That has been one of our biggest successes. But before we can look at what Stephen sees as Capitol Riverfront's selling points, we have to give some love to what the area used to be. Here's a quick history lesson. Around the time of Washington's founding in the late 1700s, three main enclaves cropped up in the new city. Jane Frondell Levy, a historian with Cultural Tourism D.C., says one of those areas was the Anacostia River waterfront, where the Navy Yard now sits. 
the Navy Yard was one of our first installations to come to Washington, D.C., right at the very beginning, and it was a shipbuilding facility as well as a defense for the Capitol. So the Navy Yard developed one of the first actual neighborhoods in Washington because, like in any city, if you have a center of employment, people will come and they'll want to live near it especially in the 19th century when everybody walked everywhere. The Navy Yard churned out ships and munitions at a steady clip through World War II. Then, as the need for weapons petered out, the Navy Yard's importance diminished. People who could afford to do so moved out of the neighborhood and into the suburbs, taking their money with them. It was a double blow to the neighborhood. Over the years, the area around the Navy Yard became populated with bus depots and mechanic shops, noisy, dirty enterprises. Then in the 1960s, the uh, Navy Yard area became known as a gay-friendly area with lots of nightclubs and places where people, frankly, at that time wanted to go and have a good time and not be seen going in the door. So that's where they went. Then in 1995, the federal government announced the decision to consolidate the NAVC naval operations to the Navy Yard. Developers eyeballed the area and began building offices to accommodate the expected growth. By the mid-2000s, The Front was born. That's the nickname marketers and developers gave to the 500-acre parcel hugging the banks of the Anacostia. Desmond to the gap in left center. But the area scored its biggest coup when the Washington Nationals decided to build their new stadium in Capitol Riverfront. Michael Stevens says everything changed then. The ballpark has really branded us and mentally mapped us in a region of six and a half million people. And that was a great marketing campaign for us that 2.8 million people came last year, emerged from a metro and go, holy cow, they've built a lot of stuff here. Indeed, a lot of stuff has been built in the mixed-use community. The U.S. Department of Transportation located its shiny new HQ here. And big defense contractors like Northrop Grumman and General Dynamics also set up shop in the front. And there's a river walk and inviting parks and lots of new restaurants. One of those dining options is the Arsenal at Blue Jacket Brewery. The much-hyped spot from the folks behind Birch and Barley and Church Key occupies part of what used to be the Navy Yard's Boilermaker facility. The industrial building turned brewery is a soaring, airy space built in 1918. The height was really what blew us away because it goes up nearly 55 feet in the center. That's Blue Jacket's beer director, Greg Engert. The other cool thing was just the industrial nature of this area. You know, we we were excited by the possibility of adding a new chapter to the industry coming out of Navy Yard. It's no surprise that the cachet of the Riverfront's military history drew the craft brewery to the area. It speaks of authenticity and industry and nostalgia, things that developers and marketers seek and many residents, especially younger ones, crave. Of course, a sense of place can be tough to maintain in a neighborhood, a meticulously planned mixed-use neighborhood that's changing as dramatically as this one. But Jane Freundel-Levy says in an ideal world, developers and the city will engage with the remnants of the area so that the spirit of the place is preserved and honored. It takes a conversation between the developers and, with any luck, the remnants of the existing community if someplace is being redeveloped to come to a better future for everybody. I'm Lauren Ober. Want to take a virtual tour of The Front? We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org.
break. 75-year-old people don't generally start businesses. 75-year-old people generally are in Palm Beach or Palm Springs or some palm. We'll meet a D.C. baker who proves it's never too late to whip up a new career. That story and more coming your way in just a minute here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we are turning over a new leaf with a show we are calling Fresh Starts. For this next story, we'll head up Connecticut Avenue Northwest. All right, we are walking up Connecticut. In Washington's Van Ness neighborhood. Sorry about the wind. And go inside. See if I can open this door. A construction zone. That's where, these days, you'll find a man. Hi. How are you? I'm looking for Mark. Who proves that just because you get older... Uh, he's right there. See the old man. Your fresh starts don't have to be finished. Hi. Mark Furstenberg. Hi. Rebecca Shearer. The so-called old man here is baker, entrepreneur, and James Beard award-winning cook Mark Furstenberg. I say so-called old man because even though the Baltimore native is 75 years old... Can I ask when your birthday is? In June, I'll be 76. He's constructing a brand new bakery called Bread First. Although I was clearly too old to do it, I really wanted to do it. Too old? Why do you say that? 75-year-old people don't generally start businesses. 75-year-old people generally are in Palm Beach or Palm Springs or some palm... But not Mark Furstenberg. I mean, he didn't even become a professional baker until his 50s. He worked for President John F. Kennedy. He wrote scripts for ABC News. He even headed a company that manufactured copper tubes. But in 1988... I was working for the Washington Post, and I turned 50 and decided I didn't like what I was doing. I didn't like writing about other people's experiences. I wasn't ready to give up my own. So after an inspiring, if heated, conversation with his dear friend, then Congressman Barney Frank... I I can't repeat on the radio exactly what he said. (laughs) Furstenberg decided to take his longtime love of food... And make it my profession. As for what kind of food to focus on? I was a single parent of two teenage boys, and my sons and I carried a questionnaire door-to-door around the neighborhood asking people what they wanted. And those questionnaires came back, and people wrote all over them, why is there no good bread in Washington? I used to live in Brussels. We had wonderful bread. I used to live in California. We had wonderful bread. We want bread. And I, having been a home baker, thought, oh, I can do that. That was stupid. (laughs) Stupid? It was not stupid to decide to do bread, but it was stupid to think that I knew anything relevant to baking it professionally. So he apprenticed himself at bakeries around the country, and in 1990 he opened Marvelous Market, credited as the first Washington bakery to turn out European-style artisan bread. He sold it in 1993, and four years later he opened Breadline. And when I sold the Breadline downtown, I expected to be finished As a baker, I wanted to be a consultant and coach. But that gig didn't quite pan out. For one thing... I wasn't very good at the consultant role. And for another... 
In 2010, his older sister died. Carla Cohn had founded and owned the legendary D.C. bookstore Politics and Prose. And had done something so wonderful for the city by creating a little institution that is valued by the city. And I thought, partly in her memory, but partly because of my having lived here for half a century, that I ought to try to leave a bakery in the city. Which brings us to Brad First. Mark First and Brooke shows me around the airy split-level space. Well, let's start at the front. Which will eventually house a bread oven, a pastry case. And then, as we walk back, we come to the coffee and drink station. Though first you'll pass the ice cream station, which will offer six homemade flavors. And on the counter there, we'll make milkshakes and ice cream sodas. You, you probably are too young to know what an ice cream soda was. I, I can't say. I, it dates back to my childhood. Yeah, well, it goes back to mine. And if you walk upstairs... Upstairs means up about 12 steps. You'll pass the food kitchen, where they'll whip up soups and salads and spreads, and the pastry kitchen, where they'll bake everything from croissants to moon pies. Both kitchens will be fully visible to customers. I wanted to create as intimate a connection as I could between people and the baked goods so that adults, and particularly children, can watch the process. And that's a big thing with Mark Furstenberg, educating people, helping them learn. That's why he enlisted five apprentices to help him open Bread First, like Michelle Vaughn, a young attorney who dreams of opening her own neighborhood bakery. I'm putting together a website for Bread First. There was a period of time where I was sort of overseeing the apprenticeship program. Um, there was a period of time where I was participating in design and looking up vendors. So it's really been all over the map for me. Same goes for Violetta Pelchik, whose vast retail experience actually got her promoted from apprentice to Bread First's general manager. You know, Mark was saying it's strange to have someone as old as he is opening the business, but I think we get two benefits. One is he has fresh ideas, even though he's an older man. You know, he's modern, and he also has all that experience. So you get someone who's creative and fresh and innovative, but you also get someone who has a lot of wisdom. Mark Furstenberg says he plans on contributing his fresh ideas and wisdom full-time once Brad First opens, most likely in April. But once the business is on its feet, he says, he'll pull back until eventually he'll sell it to his staff. I may appear to all of you to be in good physical condition, but obviously I'm not going to be able to be doing this into my 80s. My strategy for trying to create something that is of value to the city over the long run is to sell it to the people who make it successful in the first place. After that, he says, he's not sure what he'll do. He may stick around D.C. I've not lived anywhere else for 50 years. Or he may not, but one thing is definitely for sure. You're not moving to Palm Beach or Palm Springs or whatever, are you? No, I, I, I would be bored in Palm Beach. <laughs> Want to see photos of a bakery on the rise? We have pictures of the Bread First space on our website. And if you want to get to know the Bread First apprentices a bit more, we also have links to some of their Pinterest pages. It's all on metroconnection.org. And now a story about another fresh career start, in this case after nearly two decades on the job. Ever since Chris Zimmerman was elected to the Arlington County Board in 1996, he's been one of the most vocal proponents of the county's transit and pedestrian-friendly growth. Now he's leaving for a job at the advocacy group Smart Growth America, which promotes those same sorts of policies nationwide. 
Jacob Fenston spoke with Zimmerman about Arlington's ongoing transformation. At the entrance of the Arlington County offices, there's a tiny, precise scale model of a future streetcar stop. So this is Pentagon City. Uh, over here on the right, this is where the Fashion Center Mall is. Uh, County board member Chris Zimmerman is pointing out miniature tree-lined streets. It's an intersection that in real life is dominated by six lanes of car traffic rushing off Interstate 395. But in the model, it's dominated by pedestrians. That's one of the most important functions of streetcar as an element in uh, an urban environment. It really does help not just to provide transportation to move people, but actually to humanize the environment. Arlington's streetcar plan is still controversial and in the planning stages, but it's typical of the changes Zimmerman has championed in the county. He moved here in 1979, before Metro had opened the Orange Line to Clarendon, where he rented an apartment. My roommate from college and I got the place for $215 a month, utilities included, which we split, of course. And uh, I remember walking around Clarendon, where they were finishing up work to open the subway, uh, the Orange Line. You know, there were older businesses. Uh, there were things like old, you know, antique shops. There were an amazing number of palm readers in Arlington. Of course, used car lots everywhere. And not that many people walking on the street. And, of course, uh, within the year, the Metro Line opened to Boston. And that did change everything, uh, including uh, the rents, which... Uh, frankly, is why I got married the next year we moved to South Arlington. What do you think has driven the change since you've been here? Um, Is it market forces? Is it conscious decisions by leaders in the community, residents? And the answer is yes. Um, It is both those things. It is always both those things. It is never market by itself. Um, In the late 70s, Arlington was in many ways kind of a typical dying inner ring suburb. It had been losing population particularly people with kids, were moving to new suburbs, you know, just outside and farther and farther out every year. Um, A lot of people came here, started out here, and then moved because that was the thing you did. You know, you moved to the bigger house and the bigger lot in the suburbs with the new school. It didn't seem like a place that was happening. And that really is what began to turn around in the 80s and more dramatically, of course, in the 90s in the last, you know, 20 years or so. But part of what happened, of course, was Metro. I mean, there was a great vision by people who did the initial planning and investment in the 1960s and 70s. But you couldn't just get Metro. Other places got Metro and didn't do very much with it. And you joined the um, county board in 1996. What do you think the the big challenges have been in terms of of seeing through that vision of development around Metro and around transit? Okay, so, you know, the the most important thing is the first fundamental decision, right, that our predecessors made. Um, But the details really do matter, and the details are what uh, was left to us. Um, we had to rediscover the principles of city making, you know, of of designing uh, urban areas for human beings, because that in the United States became almost a lost art after World War II. And doing it, not just having to rediscover the old ways, but actually having to do it in an era that in fact does involve automobiles and we have to accommodate them. That That's a new thing that's had to be invented. And, and Arlington wound up being at the cutting edge of that because because we were ahead of other places and needing to figure that out. Is there sort of a trade-off in terms of making a place affordable and this kind of development? I think a lot of people sort of think of transit-oriented development as being code for gentrification or or at least being part of that. And, and okay, so that is the next most important part of this. Let me pause for a moment, though, and just say that's a remarkable achievement. 
because when they first passed the plan for, uh, you know, for Arlington's Metro, when they first committed to building the subway and adopted the initial sector plans, the big concern was, will anybody ride this train and will anybody want to live near it? So the fact that we've turned around so much that, it's, that our concern now is, can it possibly be affordable for anybody who isn't wealthy? That's a measure of the success of this effort. Now, it is a problem. You know, every extra bit we've put into making transit work better, every bit we've put into making our parks in communities nicer, every bit we've put into making our schools so desirable has contributed to making housing less affordable. Is it compatible? Can you have this rising, the rising value of doing something that's very desirable and still have affordability? And the answer is yes, you can if you're committed to channeling some of the increased value that you're creating into housing affordability. That was longtime Arlington County Board member Chris Zimmerman speaking with Metro Connections Jacob Fenston. Zimmerman is stepping down next month to join the advocacy group Smart Growth America. We'll end today's show by bringing back one of our favorite series here at Metro Connection, DC Gigs, our ongoing look at people with distinctively DC jobs. Today we'll meet Captain Charlene Thorine. She's a helicopter pilot for the President of the United States. Jennifer Strong spent the day with Thorine to see what it's like to pilot around the Commander in Chief. My name's Captain Charlene Thorine, call sign Cindy Lou, and I'm a pilot at HMX-1, which is a presidential helicopter squadron, and we're based in Quantico, Virginia. It's never the same. It's not routine, um, which is certainly one of the appeals of coming here. I've had days where you don't come until later because then you'll fly at night, and then days where you come here and you get on a cargo aircraft and fly halfway across the world to go support a presidential movement, you know, <laughs> on the other side of the globe. There is no typical day at HMX. <laughs> so this is the stake hangar, and this is where we have the frog. So that's the, the twin rotor aircraft. It kind of looks like a, it's sort of a banana shape, um, and it's got tricycle landing gear. And those we have green side frogs and, and gray frogs. So the green ones are the ones that are painted really nicely. The gray ones are kind of our workhorses, so when we're doing support for the Marines, pick them up from one landing zone and fly them somewhere else, drop them off, and then they have to navigate their way home, which is all something that we had to do. And I think being on the other side of it, being the pilot who gets to drop them off, you kind of chuckle a little bit because you know what they're going to go through. (laughs) Um, And then we also have the MV-22 is the tilt rotor aircraft. So it's got the uh, propellers on the the ends that kind of tilt at a 90-degree angle so it can take off and land like a helicopter, but then also fly like an airplane. So kind of a, a blend of those two disciplines. So I see two up and driving, one is back, less than 70% NF. Near zero torque on the number one, proper physical split in the handles with one, and the ground idle detent, if we all concur, we'll shift. Shifting from accessory to flight. We are in the H3 flight simulator. So we use this for all of our training for familiarization, emergency procedures, and then instrument procedures as well. Here they can manipulate the weather from clearing a million to the middle of a snowstorm. Uh, thunder and lightning and, and uh, everything in between. And then they can put in malfunctions to the aircraft as well to uh, ensure that we've been studying our emergency procedures and know what we need to do. Uh, since most of us are trying to juggle two or three different aircraft, 
each aircraft flies a little bit differently and then the emergency procedures are a little bit different as well. We have about 80 pilots in the squadron, and it sounds like a lot, and it's actually the largest squadron in the Marine Corps. But because of our mission of supporting him wherever it is he is in the world, that means if he's traveling a lot, we're traveling a lot, and we have to cover all of those areas. So you'll go a couple months without seeing certain guys, and they'll come through and go, oh, are you new here? You go, well, actually, I've been here for six months, so I'm not brand new. I'm fairly new. But it's just kind of the nature of the business. That was Captain Charlene Thorine talking with reporter Jennifer Strong about her job as a Marine Corps pilot for the President of the United States. If you know someone with a distinctively D.C. gig, let us know. You can email us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Everybody's working for the weekend. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Jonathan Wilson, Brian Russo, and Lauren Ober, along with reporter Jennifer Strong. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and MetroConnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on MetroConnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you a special production of WAMU 88.5 News called Crack, the drug that consumed the nation's capital. We'll head back to the late 1980s and early 90s when crack turned this town upside down. We'll also look at the relationship between our then struggling city and the thriving D.C. of today. A lot of people went to jail for life over what they created and the havoc that happened in D.C. in the 80s and 90s. You know, people are paying the price for that. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.